Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the one-year anniversary call-in show. I am so excited to be able to answer your questions. I receive questions from people who are of all ages and all backgrounds. And your questions were so different from each other's that it gave me a lot of opportunities to explain a lot of things and also research some things so I could really answer you in a way that felt very respectful of the effort you made in calling in with your question or writing in with your question. The way that the show is going to work is that I will first answer the questions where people wrote them in. They didn't feel comfortable for one reason or another or didn't feel it was important to have their voice on the show. So I will be stating their question and then offering my answer. And those will be followed by the questions that were called in. And you'll hear those people ask their own questions. And then I will answer them. So here we go. Enjoy. The first question is from a person who has been listening for a while and feels a great internal conflict. Here was his question. I've been a member of a church that is falling apart because the pastor was caught doing many illegal and unethical things. And actually seems to have been doing them for years. So the problem is that I never knew it. So how is that possible? How is it possible that the congregants don't see those things? So the answer is one that I actually talk to a lot of people about. I don't know what illegal and unethical actions were happening, but There are a lot of reasons that you and others may not have seen what was going on. Sometimes people give religious leaders a lot of trust and an assumption of innocence. So, you know, you might not be picking up on signs and hints of something that you feel is off or that seemed kind of suspicious to you. And some of the congregants who may have noticed were potentially told to just pray for the pastor who has lost his way, not to say anything, not to be critical. Some may have also been told after getting suspicious and asking questions that it was actually wrong of them to doubt the pastor. And it was right spiritually for them to be able to move on and to forgive and to forget and again, to stay silent. And in other situations, congregants who tried to come forward or go public with what they've seen or experienced firsthand, well, I've noticed from the past that they are often the ones who are demonized, just trying somehow to destroy a man of God or doing it for attention or to cause trouble, or in some communities that are very tight-knit, where the people all know each other, people who are mistreated or are disturbed by something they've witnessed will often pretend to be fine, pretend that nothing is wrong, not let on, because the fear is that they, as the whistleblower, will be the one to be pushed out of the community. And for people who have no other community, well, they'll do what they can to stay within this community no matter what. So there are actually many reasons, but the important message here is not to blame yourself for not seeing what was hidden from you. Thanks for your question. This second question is from a man whose former boyfriend takes control over him and manipulates him, and then when he, the person who contacted me and listens to the podcast, breaks things off, well, this boyfriend has a way of somehow talking him back into coming back and trusting him again, and then he just winds up in the same controlling kind of relationship he was in before because the boyfriend hasn't changed, and then nothing really has to change. So the question is, how do I resist his successful efforts so far 
to pull me back in? This is really a good question because this has to do with people who I come across a lot in my field where people are, you know, the, the targets of people like this. They have a lot of charisma. They can be very charming, very convincing, and sometimes even very persistent, kind of wear you down until you say yes. They want to get their way, so they're very persuasive. So how do you resist it? I think it's important that this happens over and over again. So because it happens over and over again, you know that you're susceptible to this, as a lot of people are. But start making a list. Start writing things down in a place that's private where you keep track of all the reasons you left before and also all of the things that your boyfriend or ex-boyfriend promised that he would change and that those changes never took place. And also sometimes it's a kind of a good idea to get friends on the outside as kind of quote unquote sponsors, people who you can lean on when you're feeling weak in the knees, when you need someone to help you be reminded of the reasons you left before and how free you felt and how much better you felt. And this person who keeps manipulating you, he might not be able to change or he might not feel he needs to if his manipulations work. People will keep doing what works for them. And people who coerce you to come back but have no intention of modifying their behavior and treat you respectfully and respect your wishes and freedoms and boundaries, then it's really important to remember that in these situations, that person cares more about reclaiming you, so to speak, and seeing how much power they have over you than they actually care about you and love you. And good luck out there and try to be strong. For the next question, one of my subscribers named Kim from New Zealand, she writes the following question for me to answer. I'm interested in your views on multi-level marketing companies, and when I listen to your podcast, I keep noticing so many parallels with MLMs. I have recently lost a close friend to an MLM. She's changed so much, it's like she's a different person. And suddenly all she wants to talk about is essential oils and her fabulous new hashtag boss babe friends. She can't be friends with me anymore because I don't buy from her to support her business. And business is in quotes. Plus, I made the fatal mistake of voicing my doubts about MLMs to her and that just made her block me. It's all deeply distressing. Do you feel these businesses are effectively cults? Can they do real psychological harm to people who join? And is there anything I can do to help my friend? I come across this a lot. There are actually a lot of people who come to me after they've been in many multi-level marketing systems, going from one to the next. When one didn't quite work, they thought, well, it was just a problem with that one, as opposed to a problem with the system itself, where it's really not designed a lot of the time for people to be able to have true success. So some are like cults. And most of these groups are set up so the upper echelon gets wealthy, but everyone else sort of suffers and is just left with a garage, an attic, or a trunk of your car that's filled with products you've purchased and can't sell. And the people really lower down in these groups are supporting the upper echelon. So basically, you help them buy their mansion, sorry to say. So it can also make people pretty pushy. Mm, some of them are told that in social events, um, any kind of family event, that's the time to sell. That's the time to bring in new buyers. That's the time to be able to have people buy products so that when you go back, to a meeting, you can tell people how many buyers you got. You can tell people how many people you brought in. Some are so controlling that they'll tell people to push people out of their lives who stand in the way of them giving more money to the company, which is this situation that Kim talks about. And in some ways, the black and white thinking that's involved in them kind of makes you fall into a trap where 
they'll tell people that if someone stands in your way of this, if they doubt it, if they question it, it equals them not supporting your dreams or your path to success or they're jealous of what you're going to be able to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. This also includes spouses in some situations. The other part is the carrot. Wealth is just around the corner. Don't stop now. Don't stop now because then you're going to be giving up all of your chances to wealth. It, it is something that's just going to be happening to you any second. And what that does is it gives you a lot of hope, but it turns out in most situations it's false hope. So you spend time and money pursuing something that is usually more smoke and mirrors than actual success. If someone you care about is involved in one of these and you can see what's happening, don't be critical of the organization and don't be critical of them wanting to be involved. Don't fall into the trap. You don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't care, someone who's just being negative. But instead, you can be supportive of their dream to have success. Because why not? It's actually a good thing. It's not their fault that the place they're going to try to have success is taking advantage of them. But ask them how it's going. Ask them to really look at it, not because you're doubting it, but because you're kind of curious. And also ask them if the promises of success have come true yet. Help them see the reality of the situation with their own eyes. Thanks for your question. The next question is from one of my subscribers, Mary, who is asking actually about large group awareness trainings. Sometimes they're known by certain names that you might be familiar with, LifeSpring, Landmark Forum, WorldWorks, other groups like it. And she wants to know if I consider them to be cults. It's a question I get asked a lot. And there are people who come to see me who have been involved in groups like this who felt that it was harmful to them. And there are others who will say that it was actually very instrumental in helping them get over their fears and helping them learn things that they could take with them into their lives. So for some people, it is actually quite cult-like, and for others, not so much. And I think because you don't know how it's going to affect you, you really want to do your research. You want to be able to talk to people who have gone, who stopped going, and find out why they stopped going. You also want to be aware that you're going to be pushed in front of people there to get into sometimes your deepest, darkest places. And there aren't mental health professionals there just in case you have an anxiety attack or you really have a panic attack and you were hoping that there'd be someone there to talk to to help you through it who would know something and be trained in mental health but that's not the case necessarily. So you're out of luck if you really have an issue. The other problem is that it is very taxing on your system and you have to be prepared for very long hours and very few breaks. And also having people sometimes standing in the doorway and you can feel trapped. And if you have fears of those sorts of things, of being trapped, of being controlled, that is not a situation you want to find yourself in. The other thing that I think is problematic is that because everyone there is different, everyone there has a different history, everyone there is going to be able to handle it or not handle it and everywhere in between, the issue becomes that if you don't really respond to it well, kind of turned back on you, that you're not doing it right, or you're not trying hard enough. And I think that that is a really dangerous situation. The other part is that there can be this kind of immediate sense of community, because if you talk about the things that you fear most, or that you love most, or that have traumatized you in front of people you've never met before, you suddenly feel close to them, and you can feel like they are your friends. But these friendships are highly conditional probably more conditional than all other friendships you've had because if you decide to not come back, these friends really, by and large, are encouraged to no longer have contact with you. And the only contact they should have is to try to bring you back in. It's also something that can make you a little, for lack of a better term, obnoxious <laughs> in social situations and family situations because 
a lot of these groups will push people to recruit other people in. And so this becomes the thing you hear them talk about over and over again when you want to talk about something else and they don't seem to want to get off that subject. It's hard to want to spend time with them. The other part is that you want to be mindful of an organization that is sort of never done with you. You go in, sign forms, be careful of the forms because you're usually forfeiting your rights on those forms. So don't sign them right away. Show them to an attorney before you sign them, even if they accuse you of being doubtful or that somehow it's a negative mark on you that you want to delay and have someone look at the forms. Do it anyway. But when you get involved, you finish with your introductory meeting, and then there'll be pressure for you to sign up for the next meeting, and the next, and the next, and the next, and then possibly join staff. And so you thought you were just going to a workshop, and that would be it. But that's not their intention for you, because it's a business. So again, do your research. Find out what you need to find out beforehand to keep yourself safe, so you can make a fully educated decision about getting involved or not. Thanks for the question. This next question is from Faith, a supporter of the podcast, and she was curious about destructive groups on the internet. If there are some that are more dangerous than others, if there are certain communities like anime communities that pose a risk to people. So what is true is that there are many people using the internet to send out their messages, and there are many people in groups using the internet to recruit. And I've had clients who either have family members in a group they got involved with online or they themselves have pulled away from an organization or a person that they started following online. And just in the last year in my practice, I have actually treated people who were following fringe or militaristic political groups they found online healers who promised to fix anything that ailed them if they sent them their credit card information a group that targets isolated teens and actually encourages them to leave their families in the middle of the night. And many, many people channeling ancient spirits that tell you to listen to them in order to know what direction you should go in in your life. So I think, as with any community, including anime, which was part of the question, a lot of them are okay usually just for connection and fun, having a sense of commonality. But the internet is an unregulated place, a free-for-all without limit. So if someone you know has gotten caught up in something online, again, don't, don't criticize it, but research it so you know if it's a destructive group. And just because it's odd doesn't mean it's destructive. But see the impact it's having on them. And the impact it's having on their life path and their relationships. See if they've pulled away from everyone in their life to just be part of the community of people also following this thing online. And see if you can also help guide them to connect with people and organizations that are kind of tangible in real life, in real time, so to speak. Because there are some people who get involved with organizations and with people online because they feel like they don't have a place in the world. And so it can actually benefit them if you let them know they do. Thanks for the question. And now this last question from the first part of the show. The question goes like this. I was mistreated by my counselor, not only in private sessions with her, but also in her support group. She had a say in every facet of my existence. She pushed people to be dependent on her and not make a decision, any decision, without her consent. And the group itself was more like emotional boot camp and we were raked over the coals by her and shamed and we were encouraged to do that to each other. And it seemed like it made her happy with us and proud of us. She also used us for free labor, and one of us was setting up her website, another was setting up chairs and cleaning up the room after the group, and also if someone didn't show up for group, we mocked them in their absence. We were encouraged to. So all of this treatment was supposed to make us 
stronger, more honest, more authentic, fearless. But it actually just made me traumatized and dependent on her and scared of therapy and scared of support groups. But now I need therapy more than ever. So how do I get over my fear? And how can I tell if a counselor is going to be professional and a support group will be safe? This is a great question. And it's, of course, one near and dear to my heart because I see people privately and run a support group. So here are some of the differences. And I'm sorry that this happened to you. Um, you're actually not the first person who's contacted me about these very, very same occurrences. So in order to find out if therapy is safe and a group is safe, you can come to a session or come to a group when you want. And you can also leave at any time and not come back at any time. You retain your rights no matter what. Also within a group, there is no public shaming. You should always be treated respectfully at all times in a therapy office or a support group. And that's why it's called a support group. The goal is for empowerment and not dependence. I don't need for you to need me. I would love for you to be able to get help with the things you've come to me to help you with and then have you use those things as you move out in the world on your own. And also getting approval for somehow being mean to each other in a group doesn't make you more honest or authentic. It makes you feel like you have to do something cruel to somebody else for someone else's approval. That's not authentic at all. So make sure that the therapist is someone who respects your boundaries, can tolerate you saying no, can tolerate being disagreed with, is fine with you taking a break or terminating therapy, and setting limits and saying that's not a subject I feel like talking about or feel like talking about yet, and that's OK. And also, to be able to tell if a group therapy is actually healthy, test a group environment. If people are criticized in the room, does the therapist help? They should. And if people are being berated in their absence, know that you are too and leave that group. It's not safe while you're there and also while you're not there. And also there should be no bartering for therapy, no free labor. Follow your conscience and don't get pushed to be cruel. Don't get pushed to do anything, actually, that doesn't feel right inside. I hope you're able to find good therapy and a good support group that helps you heal from your past experiences. And good luck. And now on to the part of the show where people called in and asked their own questions. Here we go. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey there. So I'm starting college in the fall. And due to just, you know, the movies, the information I've heard, the things that you've told me, you know, there's a, I feel like there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get approached by a number of groups, some of which will, you know, there'll be some clubs, there'll be some just well-meaning groups, and then there will be the occasional controlling, more culty sort of group. And so I was wondering if you had any advice on how I could make a good distinction between the actually legit clubs and organizations and the very interesting seeming, um, though much less legit groups. Well, I really appreciate that question about what happens on a college campus and how to know if an organization is legit or not. This happens a lot. There are a lot of people who go off to school or leave home for one reason or another and are outside of their regular community and are also switching to a new group of friends potentially. So a lot of groups that do their recruiting do their recruiting on college campuses or outside, right outside of college campuses if they're private institutions. They're not as allowed on the campus if they're private. So how do you know if it's legit? So 
One of the things that you can do is you can see if the organization, if it is on campus, if it's registered with the student union, if it's considered a student organization or not. In truth, that's one way to find out, but there are some student organizations that are still cultic groups. They go by front names. Like I remember when I was in school, there was a front name that was Alpha Omega. It was supposed to sound like it was part of the Greek system. It was not. Another one called Campus Advance, which actually had a lot of people just dropping out of school. So that was a misnomer to say the least. So do your research. See if what they're using is a front name for another organization. But also see if they are really trying to recruit you in a very pushy way, kind of overly friendly. It feels a little too easy. And they also won't take no for an answer. You know, come to our event, come to our Bible study, come to our workshop, come to the whatever it is. And if you say no or if you hesitate, well, that's just going to be something that's going to make them try harder. So be wary of that because already you can get a sense that they're not going to be respecting your boundaries. You can also ask administrators and people who work at a counseling center on campus to see if there have been any complaints. People have come to talk to them about having gotten involved in something on the campus that really affected them in a negative way. The other thing, though, is this is kind of an important part of it, that you might not detect a problem beforehand, sort of like getting into a new relationship. Everything seems okay to begin with. But after you get involved and you feel like you're being told that you need to change in some fundamental way or that your life was not good before this and you should feel lucky to have found this group or to have found this person, and also if they're pulling you away from your other friends, from your family, and also, if they're pulling you away from feeling like you have a responsibility to your school and to your schoolwork, well, then you'll know. Then they're going to be tipping their hand, and you'll know then that it's an organization you should really back away from. The other thing is that if you try to leave, and they keep trying to keep you staying in and coming back and feeling like you're going to be making the biggest mistake of your life if you leave, that's another red flag, another sign that you really should go. It's a great question. This affects a lot of people. I'm so glad you asked it. Hi, Rachel. This is Lillian. Thanks for this opportunity to call in with questions. My question is, looking at the relationship or situation retrospectively, what would your client say were things they wish their loved ones could have said or done that would have given them the clarity to recognize the manipulation and change course. Thank you, Lillian, for this question. There are actually so many things that people share with me about things they wish their family and friends could have tried or could have said. And the truth is that it's hard to know if any of them would have worked. I wish there was something magical I could offer people and I could offer families and friends in these situations where I would say, try this and it will absolutely work, and I so wish I had that for people. But the truth is that when I get feedback from people about what they wish their family and friends would have done, they also know that there were two things that could have made it work or not work at the time. One was the presentation of the information, if it came out in kind of a critical way, and also the timing of the information. People go through sort of a honeymoon period at the beginning of their alliance with people who are controlling them or when they get involved in a cultic group. And it's natural act, kind of actually to, to not see what you need to see and not want to see what you need to see. And you're going to resist other people's attempts to try to open your eyes to it. So I think also you don't want to come across as knowing more than them about their experience because they're going to dig their heels in and they're going to try to prove you wrong that you really don't understand. So clients have told me that if they had been approached with people's concerns in a really non-judgmental way, so they didn't get immediately defensive, that it would have helped them hear what their loved ones were trying to say. Like, you know, this is actually something that I'm seeing. It's making me a little concerned. I could be wrong. 
So tell me about your experience. And you start by really having a conversation. Help them really know that they're the expert of their experience. They're not able to have the vantage point that you have and be able to really see the situation, but they can at least feel safe that they can meet you kind of on an equal playing field where they don't feel like you're trying to take control or that you're trying to push them in one way or another because, again, they will resist it and they'll get kind of more shut down and more closed down during that conversation than is good for anyone. So the other thing that people have told me is that sometimes they didn't want to be told that what they were involved in was bad for them, but they were open to learning about really what the red flags were, kind of in a general conversation about other organizations or about other relationships. And once they had someone who went through kind of a list of things to watch out for or showed them a, a TV show about something that where people were taken over in one way or another, lost their freedom and lost their ability to make decisions for themselves and couldn't see it happening along the way, they can then take some of those warning signs, some of the red flags, the information that they've learned, and then when they go back to being with the person who's controlling them or they go back into the organization that's controlling them, you hope that they will realize that those things are existing there and that if they start to see it with their own eyes, then they're not going to be as resistant to it and as defensive about it. A client of mine also told me that he opened up to his best friend when his best friend was actually really supportive and positive about his new relationship. And so his buddy said, oh, I love your girlfriend. She's awesome. I think she's great and so charming and so great for you. And because he had kind of <laughs> overdone it, then my client said, I felt like I needed to kind of set him straight. But it was because the friend was really positive, and I don't know at the time if the friend already saw that there was some concern there and was doing this as a technique, or if it really kind of was snowed by this girlfriend that she was fine and she was not, that then he opened up because it felt safe to do that. If the friend had said, I don't know about this girlfriend of yours, she seems dangerous, she's controlling you, she's not nice to you, you got to get her out of your life, chances are he would have said, you're wrong, and he would have felt the need to come to her defense. The other thing that helped from some people who had shared their experiences with me was to have a family member or friend share their own experiences with them if they had ever been in a situation where they had been manipulated or controlled and there were some similarities that they noticed, but also with the certain presentation of saying, listen, I hope it's not true for you. I hope that this situation is not repeating itself in your life, but, you know, I am noticing some things that are similar. It could be that I'm extra cautious about it and I have my antenna because of my experiences. And again, I could be wrong, but, you know, I'm someone who would understand if you ever felt like this was happening to you. So I'm here if you want to talk to me. And then one of the ways that actually... I was able to reach a client entangled in a controlling relationship was totally by accident. <laughs> she was actually in a relationship with someone who often put her down and made her feel weak and made her feel like she was the troubled one, did a lot of gaslighting, made her feel like she couldn't think on her own anymore. And she felt quite, as she put it, stupid. But before she even shared anything about that relationship, I had an opportunity to talk to her and she shared a story with me about something she had done and I was telling her about the traits that I saw in her that I thought were really respectable. Um, and I guess by virtue of me complimenting her strengths, she was able to juxtapose that moment with how she was treated in her relationship. And so sometimes being able to help someone feel like you see what's good about them and you see what they're capable of, it helps them realize that they are really not people who deserve to be mistreated and they don't have to be controlled because they're actually okay and even better 
on their own without their relationship or without their connection to that cult. So there are many answers to this question, and it all depends upon what works within your family system or, or with your friend, but it's really good to connect with other parents, other loved ones who have been in situations like this to go over ideas. A lot of people can share what worked and what didn't and why, and it's very helpful information. Good luck to you. Hi, um, I'm in high school, and I was wondering what you should do if you notice someone that you know is in a very like controlling friendship. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for this question, because it reminds us that manipulation and control can actually happen at any age. So I think it's really important to be able to have people watch out for this, really in high school, middle school, elementary school. And I'm so glad you brought it up. There are some people who are going to be very accommodating. And when they're asked, what do they want to do? They're going to retort with, I don't know, what do you want to do? Because it's actually going to be more important for them to make the other person happy than to do what they want to do. Kind of people-pleasing, and that's actually not a bad trait, but it can be taken advantage of by people who will zero in on that who will see that someone is accommodating and flexible. And for someone who is controlling, they won't see it as a nice quality. They'll see it as something that they can manipulate and take advantage of. So what do you do? One of the things that's really important is to be able to see what's happening to the person who might be your friend who's being controlled by somebody else. Usually they're going to be pulled away from other people. They're going to be pulled away from you and any of their other friends. They're just going to be allowed to spend time with this other person. They're just going to be allowed to sit with them at lunch. They're just going to be allowed to hang out with them outside of school and no one else. And so it's actually important that you can make sure that they remember they have other friends and if you can invite this person to go do some things with you, not only do you remind them that they have other friends, but you remind them about the way that they deserve to be treated in a friendship where they get to have an opinion, they get to have a say, they get to share their thoughts. They don't just get told what to do and what to think. The thing that also is important to know is that if you confront the person who is the manipulator, who is the controller, to say, you know, we see what you're doing, that's actually not going to go very well. And they're going to try to take more control over this person who's your friend, to just have this person kind of be more within their web and have to prove that they really have allegiance to this person. And it will make the controller have the person they're controlling really abandon all the other friendships that they have because those other friendships are now considered a threat to them. So, yeah, you kind of go after the person who's being targeted to remind them that you care about them and to remind them that they deserve to be treated respectfully and to remind them that you really also respect their opinion on things and also to say that you miss them if they've really been pulled away from you. And it's important for them to know that other people care. And also, if you really see them suffering, let them know what you see. And let them know that you feel bad they're in this situation, but that they don't have to be. And remind them that they have choices. What's also interesting about your question is it reminds me of when people really kick it up a notch within a school system or neighborhood, or really it can happen anywhere. But when it turns into bullying, when people really want to go after other people, as opposed to just being in a controlling relationship, they actually turn their sights on people as a victim because they're feeling usually kind of powerless in their own lives and they want to take power over somebody else. So that's actually something that I've talked to a lot of students about at a lot of different schools. What do you do if you see people being bullied and also now, you know, people get cyberbullied, which is pretty horrific. Same thing. You don't go up to the bully and say, stop it. <laughs> that's not, that's not going to work. And sometimes schools 
really don't know how to respond because I've seen the school bully be called into the principal's office and the principal will give them a stern talking to and then that's all that happens. And then they leave smiling because they know they just got away with it again. And schools really need to know that there needs to be an actual consequence. In a lot of situations, there actually needs to be support given to the victim and also to the bully because the bully's usually playing out some other issue, something that might be happening to them, something also that might be true for them inside that they have to deal with. So one of the things that helps is if you notice this happening, put a group of people together and use the group of people as backup for the person who is being targeted because bullies really usually just go after one person at a time. They won't go after a whole group. So if you can band together with people to support the person who's being bullied, then it's going to be harder for them actually to be targeted and you're going to help protect them and you're going to help actually remind them that they're not alone. Great question. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Wednesday. Um, as a prison abolitionist, I'm very interested in the ways organizing can occur inside U.S. prisons as a way of connecting and empowering incarcerated people. And I was wondering, is there a cult presence inside prisons you can think of? And if so, how can prison outreach organizations engage with and prevent incarcerated folks from being wrapped up in cult abuse? This question really reminded me about why I sometimes get so frustrated by cultic groups because they really take advantage of people at difficult times in their lives. There are cults that do recruiting in prisons and in hospitals, in and around counseling centers. It's maddening. Within a prison, also, there are a lot of gangs which people talk about as being very cult-like. And sometimes it's the way to survive within the prison community, unfortunately. But also there are some groups that come in to quote-unquote save people. And it does give them a sense that they feel protected and it helps them kind of through the day. But still, the prison system needs to do much better research than it does already to be able to find out if an organization is legitimate, if it really does care about the individuals that it's reaching out to, or if it just cares about increasing its numbers and hoping to be able to use these people once they get out of prison to do recruiting for them, to raise money for them. People should never be used in this way, but especially when they're trying to get their lives together, they're already in a place where they've had to give up their freedom. Sometimes organizations come in to a place where people have had to give up their freedom to offer them this sense of empowerment and hope. But if it's an organization that really at its core is going to take away your freedom in a whole other way, then I think it's something that people in prisons should be protected from. And this really just means doing the research. And I know I say that a lot, but there's so much information out there. People just need to find out about something that they're bringing in to help prisoners, again, feel calm, be able to assess what's going on for them inside, giving them a sense of a belief system and feeling connected to something greater than them, whatever it is that helps them feel better. But again, there are some legitimate groups and some that are not. And so I think that prison outreach workers can really help prisons do their research and not get rid of programs that are there to help the people in jail, but to replace them with healthier organizations. And sometimes also within the prison system, there is someone who is a member of a particular kind of cultic group or fringe group, and that's how that organization gets into the prison. So you want to find out about that too. Is there someone who is kind of doing PR for this group, or is there some benefit to them, either financial or in terms of them raising their stats within the group? that they were able to bring that system or that cultic system into the prison system. 
So it's so important because you don't want people who are in a situation like this to go kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. For people who are released from prison and could have their freedom, it is truly a crime for them to just get swept away into another prison. Thanks for the question. Hi, my name is Holden, and I know on the show you've interviewed people um, from all kinds of different cult-related things, like with religions or uh, with just like more interpersonal situations. And I was wondering, where do you draw the line between a religion and a cult? This is a great question. Thank you so much for asking about the difference between a religion and a cult. Actually, sometimes it's hard to tell. When you're dealing with religions that are more conservative in their way, more fundamentalist, more orthodox, then sometimes they do actually seem more cult-like in the way that people really kind of envision cults. And it's hard also because some of the definitions that apply to cults can also apply to these organizations, like that there's no questioning allowed of the leader or the teachings, and also no critical kind of independent thinking allowed, where if you get involved, you have to believe it as they tell it to you. And you have to believe it as the person in charge, the pastor, whomever, says it is, so that you really don't have an opportunity to go outside that way of thinking. It's like it's all been thought out for you, and it's all been planned out for you, and it's considered to be perfect in its way, this idea of the sacred science that we talk about in this field. And so it might even be presented to you that it's dangerous for you to be having independent thinking because it will take you away from doing it the quote-unquote right way in their eyes or in God's eyes. But you do still want to be careful because if you can't use your independent thinking and you can't use your critical thinking, you are going into the sort of slippery slope of more culty thinking and belief and the environment that is actually going to have you atrophy in terms of your critical thinking because it's not going to be encouraged and sometimes not even allowed. And you'll think it's wrong for you to have your own thoughts. And I, I think that's inherently dangerous. The other thing is that they're going to try to come across as the only place. And this is more culty in my vision. It's the only place that has the answers. There is no other place for you to go that has the answers. It's the only way that you're going to be able to be safe. The only way you're going to have a relationship with whatever deity they believe in. And also, it's going to be considered or talked about as the true path. And it also often will tell you your path. And their idea of what your path should be could be very different from what you were thinking about and also what you wanted. So you want to be mindful of a group that derails you from the path that you were on, the path that you actually were excited to be on and motivated to be on. The other part that can make it more cult-like is that there's usually no governing body. These groups are going to be independent. They're not part of larger organizations, by and large. So there really isn't a kind of system of checks and balances. There isn't a group where you know people are watching out for the members, where you can go complain about something that happened that you're upset about, where you can go and let people know that you're not sure you really want to believe this or believe that. It's a closed system as we talk about cults, and so any of your complaints kind of stay in-house, and they'll convince you that you're wrong. So there really isn't the same kind of safety. The other part is that cults will often separate people from their families. Within mainline religions, there's usually an emphasis on doing it with your family, but not within cults. They really want to become your new family, and they want you to have a sense of allegiance and a sense of connection to them and to their beliefs that is greater than your connection with your family. And also, they really hold themselves out to be the judge of your value and your goodness. And it'll be based on the rules that they set up for you and the structure that you're supposed to follow. And then they will let you know 
if you are someone who is of great value or not, or if you're beneath the other people there and you have to work harder in order just to be able to be looked at as a good person again. Don't put yourself in those kinds of situations. It can really do a number on your self-esteem. The other part is that a cult will want to become your whole life. It will want to have a say over everything in your life. It's not like you go to a service and say hey to everyone and, you know, maybe have a bite to eat after. No, they want to be able to have you go and get permission first from them before you make any decision in your life, even about sort of what car you want to buy. And so there's nothing left just for you. The other part that I think is really important is that within a cult, there's a lot of deception. And with mainline religions, again, by and large, you will know pretty much ahead of time what the expectations are going to be for you, how you're supposed to believe, really even how you're supposed to dress, who you're allowed to date. You can find out these things online too now. So within a cult, though, you're not going to know what their true intention is for you. You're really not going to know what all the rules are and what all the limitations are going to be in your life before getting involved. And they purposely keep those things from you because if they told you up front, you would never get involved. Thanks for the question. Hello, Rachel. My name is Burton. I've been listening to your podcast. I'm particularly interested in the reprogramming. I had a friend back in 1969 or 70 whose daughter joined a cult from Berkeley. And uh, as it turned out in those days, there was no sophisticated reprogramming. He ended up with a detective kidnapping her in New York at the point of a gun, taking her from her holder. And uh, she never quite recovered. She had been at Berkeley, a good student there. So my question is, in terms of the programming these days, how successful is it? Are people able to return to a more normal life afterwards? Or is there a high rate of rejection where they again rejoin the cult? The second question is, is there any particular mental trait that causes people who are rational and logical to join cults, or is it the power of the leader so compelling that they convince people that they should change their lifestyle and give up their assets to, to join a cult? Is it inherent in a particular mental trait? Or is it a matter of leaders, the leader being compelling and the person being weak? That's really my question. How do you get out? And why do you get in? Thank you very much. The podcasts are very interesting, particularly the stories that we hear from people and how they've been able to recover. Bye-bye. So I really like the structure of this question. How do you get out? And why do you get in? So I think this is something that I can address in terms of cults and also just dangerous, bad, manipulative relationships. When you were talking about your friend whose daughter went through something really, I think, traumatizing, that she was rescued at gunpoint, you know, I don't know if you quite recover from that moment even though families at the time really didn't have a lot of other choices like they do now. And so people did feel like they had to go rescue their children. And sometimes they felt like this was the only way to do it. And the professionals or experts at the time said that this was the way, you know, that you pull people out of dangerous situations. And of course, if someone's life is in danger, it's not necessarily bad to take them out. In this way, again, if they really are in danger. But what happens with people who I've talked to who were pulled out of a cultic situation in this way, in this very dramatic and traumatic way, is that it made them not trust their families, that they were concerned that if they got involved in something else that their families didn't like, that suddenly there'd be a windowless van and someone with a gun and they wouldn't be able to get involved in anything their parents didn't really adhere to or believe in. And, of course, there 
needs to be some sensitivity in these situations. The fact that families often feel a huge sense of relief just to have rescued their loved one, usually after a long period of worry or just trying to find where they were. But it's important to hold off on the celebration of having them home because when people come out of a cultic situation in that way, especially, they're physically out, but they're often mentally back in. And they have probably taken in a lot of the fears that they've been taught to have about being in the world outside or being with their families. And they've left being able to have the answer and they've left being able to have the protection of the leader. So they're usually terrified when they first come out. The kind of intervention that I am ever involved in is what's referred to as an exit counseling. Usually it's where you meet with the people and you talk to them about what they're involved in and you teach them and you have discourse and you have them have a buy-in about if they're really thinking that maybe it's time to go and that it becomes their decision based on the information they're given about control, about manipulation, so that they can see it for themselves. And in that way then, they can then move to become physically out and also mentally out. And so there is a way actually for people to get deprogrammed, not kind of the classic sense of the deprogramming with the van, but to undo the programming that they were under. It is really possible, but it is something that is challenging and it takes therapy and it takes support and it takes time and also to give people a chance to connect with other people who have left to see that it's possible and to see that it's possible to get back on your feet. But you're always going to be affected by your experience in one way or another. You just don't want it to get in your way too much of having a good and happy life afterwards. And that's why you need to address what you went through to understand the techniques that were used on you and how to undo them. So the other part is about if there are psychological issues with the people who get involved. So I, I think it's actually more often the charm of the leader and the clever techniques of the leader or the recruiters that get people involved. But I do know that there are plenty of people I've seen, I've talked to, I've worked with who don't have a weakness per se, but they have an openness, not necessarily a bad thing, to new experiences. And they're not quick to dismiss an idea just because it's different. Again, not necessarily bad, but they need to know what to watch out for so they can ensure that they are good psychological and spiritual consumers, so to speak. The other part is that sometimes people feel that unless they're pushed to their brink uh, in kind of an intense experience that a lot of cults will put people through, that they're not going to get something out of it and they're not going to transform in some way. Mm, like no pain, no gain. And this isn't necessarily necessary. And it has to be done in a healthy way. And so some cults will push people and will make people feel that because they're having an intense experience, it's what they need and it's what's healthy for them and it helps them with their growth. But sometimes what it does is it actually pushes people too fast and too far and so people need to be cautious about that too, that sometimes things just take time if you're going to go through a transformation and to be patient about that. But I do really feel that even though there are some people who are going to be open to these experiences, it is, like I said, for the most part, it's the lure and it's the entrapment and it's the deception that gets people in and keeps them there. Cult leaders often learn from other cult leaders. They will learn from people who have done this before, and they've honed their skills over time to see what will work. And as I call it, getting involved in a controlling relationship with someone who's going to take over your life has done it before. And someone also who runs an organization where they're going to use you and use you up, also, they've done it before. It's a well-oiled machine of manipulation. So you want to be able to protect yourself from that. And you want to be able to know that you have the right 
to be able to say no when someone's pulling you into something, but also you have the right to leave when you feel like you're really being pushed and that your openness is really being taken advantage of. And I think it is important to be able to get some support in those moments. There are enough people out there now who have experienced things like this, and there are enough sites online and places to go for support so that you don't have to deal with this all on your own and find the strength just in yourself to leave. Lean on other people who have been through it who can help you through those moments. Really don't feel alone because it will feel too overwhelming for you to be able to move away from these expert manipulators to be able to protect yourself. Thanks for the questions. Hi, I'm a fan who has supported your podcast since its inception a year ago. And I knew from the very beginning you were providing a very important resource for all of us who are in search of cult information by creating awareness and providing direction. And you do just that and so much more. So congratulations on this achievement. And I do have a question, really two questions. First, what would it take to ensure that your podcast remained viable and continue to be this great resource? And two, we don't hear much about cults anymore, but I know they're still around. Are they as much a threat as ever? And who are they targeting? Thank you so much for your two-part question. I love that you brought up about supporting the podcast. It's a really important subject, and I am sure that I don't talk about it as often as I should because it's not the most comfortable subject for me. But I do provide this as a public service, and I pay out of pocket. And I do appreciate the subscribers who have gone to patreon.com indoctrination to offer whatever they can on a monthly basis to help offset my costs. But if you feel like it's something that's been helpful to you in your life or to someone you care about, partner with me on this and go to patreon.com indoctrination and become a subscriber be much, much appreciated. So to go on to the next part of your question, yeah, you know it is true that with the general population, people don't hear much about cults anymore. I do because I get calls about them all the time and emails and it's part of my newsfeed. But it is also the case that we don't hear a lot about the same kinds of groups and there hasn't been kind of a mass suicide in a while, which is a really good thing. But are they as much of a threat as ever? Yeah, they are. I hear about new cultic groups all the time. They just stay under the radar because the people in them are not necessarily dressed differently and they're not acting differently. And they've become a lot more sophisticated about how to recruit people in and they'll use front organization. So you think you're getting involved in something that's going to help your dental practice or that's going to help you with your dyslexia or that's going to give you the answers to your questions or is going to help you get over your fears or whatever it is. And sometimes you don't know until you check them out online or you also are already involved that it actually is something that is more of a cult. So What's also true is that some of the groups that were really big in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they have decreased in their numbers, but there are splinter groups. There is sort of the next generation of that particular cult, and sometimes they change their name, so you don't know that it's an organization that's affiliated with the original group that you had probably heard of and that you knew to actually not get involved in because you had heard that they were dangerous. So... Just because you hear the name of an organization and it doesn't sound familiar, it doesn't mean that it's safe. It means that you want to, again, be able to go online and figure out, is this the new name of an organization that I've already heard about that I knew that I shouldn't get involved in? So the other part is to respond to who they're targeting. Yeah, a lot of college campuses are still really the places of recruitment on a large scale. What's also true is that there are many more people who feel disenfranchised and feel isolated. And so they're drawn in by a sense of community. They're drawn in by 
what kind of feels like new friendships. Even though when you get involved in a cultic group, those are really not your friends. Those are people who have been sent to recruit you. And even though you think that they are your new friends, if you decide to leave or even question it, they will drop you as friends. So these friendships are more conditional, actually, than friendships you've ever had before. But there are people who live in isolation, so they get involved in cults sometimes online, uh, or they just love that someone is being friendly to them or remember something about the last conversation you had together and makes you feel special and makes you feel that you're noticed. The other part is that people now are in a hurry and they want instant cures and they want the formulas to follow and they want the answers and the promises of health and the promises of wealth really are something that help people feel that they're going to get some relief. A lot of times during economic troubles and when people are not able to have the life that they want to live, they will jump into an organization that promises that they're going to have some relief from those worries. And people now have a lot more stress. There are a lot more demands placed on people. And so the promise of relief from concerns and worries is something that people jump at the chance to have. But in their hurry to get relief, they often leap before they look. Thanks for the question. And that's it for today's show. I'm so excited that we got to do a call-in show for the one-year anniversary show. And I loved getting your questions. I always love finding out what's on people's minds and what they want to know more about. So thank you to everyone who wrote in your questions or called in with your questions. If you'd like to have another call-in show, please let me know. And just shoot me an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. It was a lot of fun to do this show and to be able to respond to the things that are on your mind so that this episode can be catered to you, my listeners and supporters. So thank you for everything. And thank you also to Kate and to Rob for helping from behind the scenes. And I'll talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.